Alright, so this is the exilic period. And the exilic period is the most foundational period, I think, in all of Jewish history in terms of getting us to what we call normative Judaism. That's like a really convoluted sentence, so I'm going to explain it. This is the period in which the synagogue is founded. This is the period in which we transition from Israelite to Jew. So everything before the exilic period, in the first temple period, right, we're dealing with Israelites. Right? We're dealing with, with Judeans in the south, Israelites in the north. I'm not going to go into this in so much detail. But we really don't have the term Jew used. If you look at, um, at the Bible, we have B'nai Israel, right? And then in later biblical literature, we have this idea of Yehudi. And the <coughs> sources that use this word is early Second Temple. And when we talk about Yehudi, it really at the beginning at least, is a geographic term, a Judean. But very soon it transitions into this idea of a Jew. And so when we get to the second century, this is like my imaginary second century, you right? second century over here, we absolutely have a very um, dominant concept of Jew, but you should know that this is very controversial in the academic world. How to uh, translate the Greek Judeo um, do you translate it as BCE or CE? This is all BCE. I'm going to put a big zero. You know, I can't put a zero here because there's no year zero. If you ever go to a cocktail party, it's like an interesting piece of information. There's no zero. It's interesting. Okay, so we're just going to write CE. There's no zero. Okay. So, no zero. Okay. <coughs> so, um, so we today we're going to be look at we're going to be looking at texts that were translated from Greek into, uh, into Latin and later into English. Um, here is a source sheet. Welcome. And the question of how to translate Judean or Yehudin, Hebrew, is very, very controversial because many Jewish scholars feel that by translating this word as Judean, some scholars do not acknowledge the fact that Judaism was a vibrant, thriving religion, not just a nationalist tribe at this time. But my uh, very strong opinion is that, and I think we'll see this in the sources, is that by the second century BCE, the term in Hebrew and in Greek is used to denote a religious entity. And the reason why I think that, is, first of all, we have a lot of sources, not just Jewish sources, but Greek sources as well, that talk about the fact that by the second century BCE, Jews are spread out all over the Greek Empire. And so even by this time, Jews are trying to fashion how they relate to the land of Israel. Oh, okay, so we're going to talk about that. So, right. This is the Greek period. So in 539 to 334, we're in the Persian period. Okay, so we're about to do that. When the Jews are living under the Persians... So Darius says, you can all come back, right? Rebuild the Second Temple. The majority of Jews do not come back. And this is very important to know. 
Because when we think about what it means, this period that we call restoration, rebuilding the second temple, we kind of automatically go to this very idyllic place in our mind, right? Where we just like undid the exile, right? We're back to where we were in the first temple period. We're all holding hands and singing Kumbaya in the land of Israel. And actually, that's just not true. Historically, the majority of Jews did not go back to the land of Israel. Many of them stayed. And they stayed in Babylonia, and they stayed and stayed and stayed, right, through the centuries. And in fact, those Persian Jews stayed until the 1970s, right? We have a very strong core of Jews who just do not leave, right? But we also have Jews who do leave, and they go all over the world. So we have Jews who, in the Persian period, leave Persia, and they go to Rome. They go to uh, what will become Alexandria, of course, that name doesn't appear until the time of Alexander, but they go to Egypt, they go to Syria, they go all over the world. And so as the Jews are spreading out, <coughs> there's also an effort to try to approach Jewish history with one single concentrated narrative. Now this takes many, many centuries, and uh, I'm not sure that ever actually happened. But okay, so this is the Persian period. Now in 334 to 333, we have the rise of Alexander the Great, and this is the beginning of the Greek period. Now, one of the biggest misconceptions of Hanukkah is that the holiday of Hanukkah is a holiday in which the Jews fight against the Greeks. This is really a very, very uh, big mistake because there are different kinds of Greeks. When Alexander dies, his, um, his kingdom is divided into four parts, right? So the, Mas the Macedonian territory becomes its small kingdom. We have the Seleucids in the north, right north of the land of Israel. Here I'll draw a little map. This is my terrible, terrible map of the Levant. That's the Delta. Okay, this is kind of like Israel. Oh, you gay. <laughs> okay, so we have the Seleucids over bad. here. Not too bad. Thank you very much. Seleucids over here. We have the Antiochids over here. We have the Ptolemies over here. Ptolemy Greece. And so... Now, you can see the problem, right? I mean, Israel's the, in the, in it's the middle. prime real estate, yeah. right? The Jews who have gone back to the land of Israel, starting the beginning of the Second Temple period, around 539, 515, 15, 515 is when the Second Temple is complete. So, the exilic period ends in 539, when Darius has come back, but the Second Temple period doesn't <coughs> begin until 515, so you have like this kind of like black, like dark matter <coughs> between these times. Okay, so this is prime real estate. Now, when Alexander dies, he doesn't leave a will. He doesn't say, okay, I want this general to have this territory and that general to have that territory. So it's a big mess. And everybody wants a piece of Judea. It's called Judea at this time. Now, why? Why does everybody want Judea? The Ptolemies sort of very, very quickly get control of, the, of, of northern Africa. The Seleucids are pretty much quickly, you know, setting up territory over here, and they're fighting each other back and forth, back and forth. These wars are called the Six Syrian Wars. And they occur over the course of a century and a half, starting from 334 through the 3rd century BC. And of course you can see why everybody wants Judea, right? We have the Mediterranean Sea over here. It's a great trade route. Right? It connects all the different territories. So Judea is flipping back and forth, over and over, between 334 and 200 BC. But when Judea is under Ptolemaic rule, 
things are very good for them. We have no evidence of any oppression. And this is a really important detail, because I think too often we yeah. create a very strong artificial binary, right? It's us versus them. And we're going to see that in the book of Two Maccabees, it, this, the author of Two Maccabees really enforces this binary. And Two Maccabees is the first Jewish book to ever use the word Judaism. That word does not exist before Two Maccabees. Judaism, right? And then uh, Two Maccabees compares that with Hellenism. So this idea that we're fighting a culture is an artificial idea because that's not to say that there's no oppression. We will see oppression. But under the Ptolemaic Greeks, things are basically good. So for the majority of the time, there are these wars between um, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, but for the majority of the time, from 334 to 200, the Jews are mostly under the Ptolemies, and things are fine. Things get very tricky in the year 200 BCE. Okay, we're going down to the year zero, the numbers are going low. When Judea falls under control, under the Syrian Greeks, the Seleucids, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, that's when things get sour, okay? And that's in around 200 BCE. So now we have this effort. And, and why? What is it about the Seleucids that uh, makes them problematic? Okay, right. So, so how do they different from the colonies? Okay, so there are two ways to approach this question. And there's a great scholar named Elias Bickerman who... Uh, that, yeah, Jews in the Greek Age. Okay, so uh, Elias Bickerman made a very, very important point. We think of this very dark period in Judean history as being an external oppression, right? That these Syrian Greeks just said, we don't want these Jews to be different from everyone else. They should be good Greek citizens. They have to participate in the public festivals. And remember, in the ancient world, being a good citizen meant participating in public religious life, right? You couldn't separate public life from religious life. And that becomes even more apparent in the Roman period. If you were to say, I'm a good patriot, or I'm a good loyal citizen, and you didn't go to the festival of Dionysus, well, then you're just a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. So, it, so the traditional approach is just... Antiochus Epiphanes IV is very devoted to making sure that everyone under his territory is a good Greek patriot. But Elias Bickerman has another theory. He suggests, and I think that both of these theories are true, and you have to think about them both at the same time. Bickerman points out that at this time, Jewish leadership was very weak, and there was a lot of internal fighting, and there were different claimants to the high priesthood. And there were different arguments within Jerusalem leadership over to what degree they should make nice yeah. to the Greek Empire. Yeah. And all this internal <laughs> strife weakened uh, <clears throat> Ananias versus Jason. There are two claimants of the high priest, where Ananias is the pious one, and we'll talk about this tomorrow if you come, and Jason is the more Hellenized one. And uh, all these Jews within the Jerusalem leadership infrastructure are debating about how they should conduct the uh, Jerusalem temple, how they should administrate, right, and how they should relate to the higher Greek authorities. And so when Antiochus IV Epiphanes comes in and says, all right, no more Shabbat, no more circumcision, no more dietary life, it could be he's saying, look, I keep hearing rumors of Jewish strife, and it's clearly coming from the fact that you have a separate ancestral tradition, 
So I'm going to just annihilate that tradition because it's causing me a headache. Right? And that's what Bickerman says. That you guys are fighting so much over how to interpret your tradition, whether it's practice, just no more. Done. You're Greeks now. And that's Bickerman's contribution. Okay. In around 175, Antiochus Epiphanes IV issues formal legislation that the Jews cannot observe the big three. The big three identifying markers of Jewish identity in the ancient world are Shabbat and holidays, circumcision, dietary law. That's the big three. Once you didn't keep those, assimilation was just a block away. So when Antiochus bans these things, of course there's an uproar. And what we're going to look at in Chabruta are the earliest sources that talk about the response to this, you don't have to look at it yet, the response to this um, legislation. Now, the rebellion is very quick. I think we think of this like a very long, drawn-out period, but actually by 164 BC, the Hasmaneans have a ton of history, and it's actually very astonishing. You know, this is like kind of a, an amazing thing that this happened. Um, the Hasmonean period starts in 164. It's a very short period. Anyone know when it ends? Oh, it's the, oh man, foiled. It's a century long, right? The Hasmonean period ends in 63 BC. It's very, very short. Because what happened in 63? The beginning of Judea being incorporated into the Roman Empire. So we have the Persians from 539 to 334, the Greeks from 334 to 164, right? Then we have the Hasmonean period, where Judea is under autonomous rule. And then from 63 on, we're under the Romans. First, as a client kingdom, uh, which means that there's a degree of autonomy, and you might have heard of the infamous Herod the Great. Herod, Herod. So Herod is a client king of Judea, so he is a king right in the second half of the first century BC, but he has to pay money to Rome, and basically the relationship is you pay us money, we don't kill you, right? But in 6 CE, Judea is fully incorporated into the Roman Empire. That is past my timeline. So looking at uh, the Hasmian period, this is very short. Pompey, not the city, but the Roman general, invades Jerusalem. We have a lot of very sad Jewish literature preserved in Greek about this, probably originally written in Hebrew. Okay, so this is the period that we're going to look at today, from 175 to 63 BC, from the rebellion until the end of the Hasmonean period. And at the end of the, first of all, you should know that in the second century BC, there's an enormous proliferation of Jewish literature. <laughs> Jews are writing and writing and writing and writing and writing in the second century BC. Now, we're all, are we all Jewish? Are we all Jewish here? I teach Catholics. So I don't take it for granted. But, um, but, you know, when, when things are good, Jews tend to not write. So, like, we have very oh. little information from the Persian period, very little. But then we have, like, this crazy amount of literature from the second century. When things go wrong, everyone's like, I need to tell you about this terrible thing we're all writing. Right? Not sure today? Okay. <laughs> you say when things go wrong, they do a lot of writing? I think so. That's I think true. So. Yeah, think, thank you. Think about Russia. Before you think about Russia, it's great writing. Very Russia. interesting. I didn't think about Russia. It became modern, like now, 
Right. Nothing coming out of Russia. <laughs> Interesting. No, I hadn't thought about Russia. Okay, so in the second century BC, we have a, a huge amount of writing. <coughs> Most of this, or all of it, depending on how you date texts, is not canonized in the Hebrew Bible, right? The Hebrew Bible is basically closed by now. But some of the Greek, Jewish, and very pious literature gets preserved in a collection of 15 texts called the Apocrypha, and that's canonized, that's put into the Bible uh, of the Catholic tradition. But there are many, many other Jewish texts that are written in Greek that are not preserved in any canon, in any Bible, and they are part of a modern collection of what scholars call the pseudepigrapha. Graphos in Greek means writing. Pseudo means fake, but it's not meant to be like insulting. It's just together means falsely attributed writings. Mm. It's not even accurate because most of these writings aren't attributed to anyone. They're just anonymously written. Some texts we have, let's say, the text called the Testament of Solomon, which purports to be the speech that Solomon gave on his deathbed. Definitely not written by Solomon. I mean, I think we could all agree on that. Whether or not we've read the Testament of Solomon, <laughs> it's a beautifully written Greek text. Um, and so this was considered a way of paying homage to the biblical heroes. And we have many, many testaments. We have the Testament of Adam, the Testament of Abraham, the Testament of the 12 patriarchs, lots and lots of testaments. We have all sorts of uh, texts that are written in Greek. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because one of the biggest points that I want to make today is that making a binary between Greek and Jew is like making a binary between American and Jew, right? Like if I were to say to you, are you American or are you a Jew? You, you would be like, what? This is a very confusing question. And uh, the, the Jews in the ancient world found it equally confusing to be asked, are you Greek or are you a Jew? And so when we look at Greek texts that are Jewish, we should not assume that they're Hellenized. This is very important. When we look at English texts that are translated from Hebrew, we should not assume that they are insular. Okay, should I say that again? Now, we're looking at all this in translation, mostly, today. But one and two Maccabees and Josephus are translations of Greek. What I do not want you to do is start with the supposition that these are assimilated, Hellenized texts. Absolutely not. Likewise, we have texts that were probably originally written in Hebrew that advocate for a degree of integration into the Hellenist world. And when we look at two Maccabees especially, uh, this is written uh, for short on Hebrew, it's beautiful Greek, high-level Greek, complicated Greek, and uh, the most anti-Greek text we have written by a Jewish person. So, But there's an irony to that because this person is using beautiful Greek, clearly educated in a Greek philosophical context. Okay, so this is a very brief timeline. Now, I want to introduce the sources that we're going to learn. We'll do about an hour of Karuta, and then we'll convene. So, one and two Maccabees were written at the end of the 2nd century BC, meaning the 140s to 120s. 140s to 120s. Not right, I think. Interesting. Yeah, one and two Maccabees, I just said it. Okay. And so these are going to be the first few pages of your source sheet. These books are very different. Even though they sound similar, it's a very, very different book. One Maccabees is a very straight, uh, dry account, very technical account of what happened, what are the events that led up to the rebellion, and what happened in the decades after the rebellion. 
Uh, probably this text was written by a court insider, someone who's very pro-Hasmonean, and probably this was a commissioned text. So it was someone who was hired, a scribe or a scholar, was hired to write a technical account of the history, and this was going to be for official public records. So it is pro-Hasmonean, right? We were talking before the class today about history in the ancient world. It doesn't really ever argue to be objective. There's always an ideology. And writing good history in the second century BC didn't mean being exactly objective, right? There is also this element of seeking to advance an ideology or to be polemical to a certain degree. And so yes, while Maccabees is polemical, it's pro-Hasmonean, but it is also meant to be um, an accurate or reliable account. What we have in two Maccabees is completely different. Can I erase this? I'm going to erase this. Okay, two Maccabees is, I, I don't know, I, I'm just like at a loss. Whenever I think about two Maccabees, I just feel speechless. Um, it's a, a condensed version of a five-book collection. So somebody by the name of Jason of Cyrene, Cyrene's in North Africa, Jason of Cyrene, a Jew, but like today, many very pious Jews did not have Jewish names. Jason of Cyrene wrote a five-book collection of the Hasmonean period. And in an anonymous Jew, whose name we don't have, said this is a very, very long text. I'm going to condense it. And so our manuscripts of two Maccabees today opens by saying, all right, hey, what's up? Yeah, there's no what's up. But I am condensing the text of Jason of Cyrene, who wrote five books recounting the history of the Maccabees. Now, it's sad that we don't know who this condenser is. But we do not have the original five-book tome of two Maccabees. Okay, and of course, in the ancient world, this wasn't known as two Maccabees. That's what we call it. <laughs> Uh, we don't know what it was known by, but we do know that this book is far more anti <coughs> as an ideology, as a culture, as a looming influence, far more anti-Hellenist than 1 Maccabees. So even though 1 Maccabees is written probably in Jerusalem, in Hebrew, so the original language of 1 Maccabees is in Hebrew, Two Maccabees, whose original language is in Greek, is very, very, very anti-Greek culture. And how do we know that one Maccabees was originally written in Hebrew? Any guesses? How do you know? How does a scholar know that? Our manuscripts are medieval, right? We're dealing at the earliest 13th, 14th century manuscripts, and they're all in Greek, maybe in Latin. So how do, we, how do scholars know, oh, this was for sure written in Hebrew, that one was written originally in Greek? I'm sorry? Use of language? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are what, what scholars call Semiticism. There are certain phrases in Hebrew that translate awkwardly into Greek. Right? And so the way that the scholar writes Greek, um, we can tell that it's a translation because when you go back and you turn it back into Hebrew, it flows much better. And indeed, scholars have reconstructed the Hebrew of Maccabees, it's not a discovery of the original, but it's an effort to reconstruct what it would have looked like. And you can find this in, in academic libraries. Okay, so one Maccabees is uh, focused on advancing a pro-Hasmonean ideology, right? probably written in Jerusalem by a court 
insider, and Tumac means the writer probably never even saw the land of Israel. Right? So I read it in North Africa. And there are certain geographic details in Tumac that are inaccurate. That someone who had seen the land of Israel with his or her own eyes would not have made glaring mistakes. So we have geographic inaccuracies in Tumac The biggest difference, or I should say the biggest aspect of Tumac that makes it distinct from other texts is that it's the very, very first uh, book, like I said, to use the term Judaism, um, you do not have this word in one Maccabees. And you certainly do not have it contrasted with Hellenism. Now, um, at the same time, when we read two Maccabees in Chavruta, you'll see that the stylistics are very, very Greek. So when someone prays, they get on both knees. I mean, you can envision their aspects that you would see in Greek plays that are being incorporated into two Maccabees. So Judah Maccabee gets on both knees and he lifts his hand to God and tears are streaming down his face. It's very dramatized. And it's dramatized by someone who clearly had uh, familiarity and very deep knowledge of Greek plays. So we have this real entertaining irony when it comes to Chumacabee, someone who's very anti-Greek and incorporating Greek stylistics. Um, we cannot read this book as historically accurate for the reasons that I noted, but also because there are blatant miracles, which makes the book very fun. I'm not sure if I gave you all of them, but in one miracle there's a, there's a, a Greek general named uh, Heliodorus who comes to invade the temple treasury. He's just a really bad guy. He wants to take all the money out of, Jerus out of the Jerusalem temple. And how is he stopped? By two beautiful white dressed uh, angelic soldiers on beautiful white horses who block him from entering the, the treasury and then get off their horses and just beat him up. And he's like, this is crazy! But the writer of two Maccabees tells us that these are angels. <laughs> so so th these are things that you would never see in one Maccabees. You do not. Famous painting, the Vatican children. I don't know. There's a lot of Hasmonean. I mean, we could talk about Judith another time, but the medieval Christian art on Judith is just like out of this world. Judith is associated with uh, with Hanukkah, but you should know that in the Book of Judith, there's no mention of Hanukkah. And I want to say one more thing before I forget. The most important thing you need to know here, because I'm not giving you the entirety of both books, there is no reference to the miracle of the oil. These are late second century BCE books. I I'm not passing judgment. I'm not saying it happened or it didn't happen. I'm just saying these texts make no mention that, that a little vial of oil was found and lasted for eight days. This is important information. Uh, I want to briefly uh, just tell you a little bit about Josephus and uh, give you some context for the Talmudic source, and then we'll go into Chavruta. Um, so Josephus, late first century CE historian, just one of the most absolutely intriguing Jewish figures in the late Second Temple period. Um, I guess kind of like to Maccabees, he renders me speechless, like where do you start with Josephus, wow. Okay, so Josephus writes four books. He writes a 20, book collection of the history of the Jews, and that's called the Antiquities of the Jews. This is like his big magnum opus. Thank you. It's magnum, I would say it's classic, but I like magnum opus better. So he starts literally from the beginning of Genesis, and he ends with his own, his own days. 
20 volumes, and so of course he covers the Hasmonean period. And he had many sources he's working with. Uh, we were talking a little bit before class that uh, on the one hand, yes, he is a historian, and he's very important for understanding Jewish life in the Second Temple period. On the other hand, uh, writing history in the ancient world doesn't mean you're going to give straight facts. You're going to insert a speech here, right? The example I was giving before is the scene on Masada where the, uh, the zealot, or the sickery, the member of the a zealot group, um, his name was Eliezer, he gives this very inspirational speech to the Jews at Masada, and Josephus cites this whole speech. Probably Josephus wrote the whole speech, right? Josephus wasn't at Masada. Josephus wasn't there. So either he's using a source, from someone else who wasn't there, right, because they're oculus, or he's writing it. So there is no binary there between providing history and, and being very inspirational, right? So Josephus does this, just, and a huge academic field of just mining Josephus and determining what's reliable as history, what isn't reliable. This is like a major academic field in itself. Okay, he also writes a history of the rebellion um, against Rome between the year 66 and 70, right, which culminated in the destruction of the Second Temple, and that's called the War of the Jews, or the Jewish War. <clears throat> and what you need to know about this, Josephus, I think they say, was born in 37, and he dies around 100. Josephus was intimately involved in the Jewish War. He was appointed as a general. He was from a very highfalutin family in Jerusalem. Uh, we know this, well, he claims that he's from a highfalutin uh, family in Jerusalem from his vita, his autobiography. Vita means life in Latin, preserved in Latin. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so in vita and in the Jewish war, Josephus talks about his personal involvement in the war, and he talks about how he was appointed as a general um, in the north, at a uh, at a stationed in an area near Gamla, and long story short, all of the people who are under Josephus's control, all the Jewish soldiers, are killed. So Josephus is a disaster of a general. Um, Gamla, which means uh, camel hump, if you look online, you could see the Gamla is like a mountain, but a very very steep mountain. Uh, there's a, just a major disaster there, and. The Jews were put under siege, and uh, Josephus escaped basically by surrendering to the general Vespasian. So Josephus is sort of seen in Jewish tradition as a traitor because he goes off to the Roman side. He has a scene where he tells us in Vita that he tells Vespasian, I see you're going to be emperor, which he does become emperor, and Vespasian's like, sure, that could totally get me killed, right? I mean, if you're a general, right. and mm -hmm. someone says you're going to become emperor, you're like, no, I won't. I'm totally loyal to that emperor. You're yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's for another discussion. But six, this, that occurred in 69 CE, where there are four different people vying for the seat of emperor. Okay, so he switches to the Roman side. So he's viewed with great ambivalence in Jewish tradition. So he doesn't really make it into the rabbinic corpus. But I do think that we need to look at Josephus as a very historically important source. Right? He isn't cited by the rabbis. He isn't cited even really in medieval Jewish literature. I mean, we have one text, Yosipon, which is sort of pretending to be Josephus. But he really isn't integrated into Jewish tradition. But he should be. I think of that. Uh, I think it's very important to think about uh, Josephus. I mean, he covers all of Jewish history up to the first century. And he writes one more thing. Uh, he writes a uh, polemical defense of the Jewish religion. Um, 
the first really systematic defense of the Jewish religion against anti-Semitic statements, it's called Against That Beyond. So, unbelievable mm. text. I mean, really, really a, just a spectacular text. Okay, so, Josephus is very confused about Hanukkah. He gives us a lot of details. He knows the ins and outs. He definitely had more sources than just one and two Maccabees. We don't know what good sources are. But he also is a little confused about Hanukkah. So I gave you the really fun paragraph of Josephus where he says, this is first century, he says, we call this holiday light, but for the life of me, I can't tell you why. <laughs> this is a really fun historical nugget. That by the first century, there was already a parallel tradition to the one that you see in the conventional sources, right? There was some sort of oral tradition that ran parallel to the sexual ones. <coughs> and Josephus doesn't have total clarity on it. By the time he's writing at the end of the first century, he's in Rome. He's not totally in touch with what's happening. That's not to say he's totally in, uh, assimilated. But he, he doesn't know why Jews call the holiday light. So this is like a fun, mysterious passage from Josephus. And then finally we'll do a Talmudic passage, which has a completely different take on the holiday. So of course one and two Maccabees focus on the military history, right? And Josephus also maybe hints towards something else with the life, but really focuses on the military history. Then we have a totally new presentation of Hanukkah in the Talmud, and then we'll end with some hints in early Midrash um, that maybe suggest, that maybe hint to us how it happened that we go from focusing on Hanukkah as a military holiday to focusing on Hanukkah as a theological miracle. So there are some Midrashic passages that might explain it. And uh, so one Maccabees is very um, anti-martyrdom, and two Maccabees is really pro-martyrdom. Now what we see in the rabbinic period, of course, we don't have time to look at the sources, but there is an ambivalence to martyrdom, whereas in the Christian sources, uh, there's just incredible devotion to martyrdom, and the martyrs are upheld as the greatest uh, role models. Exactly, and we have a little bit in the rabbinic um, period the Asarah Harugay Machut, right? And we have so it enters into the piyut, it enters into liturgy in the early medieval period. So we do, we know we have these ten rabbinic figures who are killed very terribly. The crusades. So, yes, in the crusades, it definitely enters into the into many uh, piyut teams. So we we do have that tradition. I would not say that it is as foundational to the theology of the rabbis as it is to the early Christians. And what's so strange, I think especially when I teach these sources to Jewish, uh, to Jewish students, it's very hard to wrap our heads around the idea that the Hasmoneans um, had faith in Christ. Right? Like, what would that mean? Mm -hmm. what, what is that? Right? So Gregory of Nazianzus says that, well, this level of piety could only have occurred oh. had they channeled the sacrifice of Christ himself, right? Except that was no, but that's the problem with that, right? right? So Christ dies in the 30s CE. Yeah. I should say Christ Jesus killed in the 30s CE, right? And then this story, the Maccabees between 175 and 164 BC, so this is like a strange thing. Uh, what I didn't put on the uh, source sheet is that Specifically, the martyrdom of the Hasmonean has a very central place in uh, the church father's writings. There was a dominant tradition that the bones of the seven sons were taken to Antioch, buried there, and then a church was built on top of their, on top of their um, grave. And this is a, a church that 
uh, remained in Antioch for centuries and centuries and centuries, and it's called the Ashmuni, the Ashmuni Church. But there are also, and I don't know so much about this, there's evidence that in between it being a gravesite and a church, it was a synagogue. Oh. But was that so, a synagogue of early Christians? Could have been. Uh, okay, that's a great question. Right, we do have this category of Jewish Christians in the first two or three centuries. No, so we don't know. It, there are some early medieval sources that refer to the Ashmuni synagogue. So we don't know. We don't know. Of course, Ashmuni comes from Kashmuni, right? Oh, right. <laughs> right. Isn't the um, the source for a Catholic like this praying to saints or through, like for saints intercession that's found in the Book of Maccabees as well? So definitely, two Maccabees is definitely like the earliest source. And remember, this is a Catholic text in the sense that it's preserved in the Apocrypha. So just to clarify, because there seems to be a little bit of confusion, we have the Hebrew Bible, right? In the 3rd century BCE, it's translated into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint isn't just the books, the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible. It includes the Apocrypha as we have the Septuagint. So, this is very hard to understand because the, this is 3rd century BC, right? So there's no way that when the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Septuagint and included the Apocrypha at that moment in time because many books of the Apocrypha post-date the 3rd century BCE, right? I'm getting a lot of confused. Like, over time, the Septuagint came to include the books of the Apocrypha, books like Judith, Tobit, 1 and 2 Maccabees, Psalms of Solomon, Ring a Bell, okay? So these are all Jewish late Second Temple texts. By the time Jerome translates the Septuagint into the Latin Vulgate, we have the entire Apocrypha. Meaning in the 4th century CE, Jerome, using the Hebrew Bible and the Septuagint, he definitely knew Hebrew, Jerome writes the Vulgate, and it includes the Apocrypha. So some, at some point between these two periods, the Apocrypha is being collected, and as scribes are rewriting and copying the Septuagint, they're putting in these texts. I want to say something else. It's not directly related, but it's a very important point, and that is the point that um, in the late Second Temple period, Jews were not writing on paper. Right? Say everything. Jews were not writing on paper. Okay. The idea of the book, the codex, mm. is a second century CE phenomenon. Jews were writing on scrolls. Mm. And they were very expensive. Now, if you were a Julian Alexandria, you might use papyri. Um, mainly for day-to-day documents, contracts, business transactions. But if you want to write something really valuable, like a scriptural text, you would use the more expensive, the more durable scroll. Now, the thing with the scroll is that usually, not always, because we have some evidence from Dead Sea Scrolls that, that are counter to this, but usually it's one book per scroll. So the scroll of Genesis, the scroll of Exodus, right? Sometimes you'll have two books on one scroll, but usually not. And what happens with using scrolls, first of all, unless you're a very wealthy Jew, you are not likely to own in your personal library every book of the Bible. And what happens is that as you would accumulate books, uh, scrolls, you could easily remove a scroll from a shelf or add it. The idea of canon, of a closed set of scriptural books 
isn't as incredibly urgent as it is until we get to the second century, the early urban period, when we start using books. Because then the question of what goes in and what goes out is very, very urgent. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't an idea of Tanakh. I think that there is an idea of a set of scriptural texts. But there is also a degree of fluidity here. For example, the book of Jubilees, it's not a book that's even in the Apocrypha. It's not a book in the Hebrew Bible. This is a book that retells the stories of Genesis, and it was a very popular book. There are 15 copies of the book of Jubilees found at Qumran, at the Dead Sea Scrolls. 15 copies. And no copy of the book of Esther. And so this giant, magnificent library of the Dead Sea Scrolls has 15 copies of Jubilees and no copies of Esther, right? But they're scrolls. Suggest there's a degree of fluidity. Maybe they thought Jubilees was authoritative. Maybe they didn't. But the point is that you as a bystander would not know immediately what was authoritative to them, what was scriptural to them. And that fluidity, hold on, is very important when we look at 1 and 2 Maccabees. Were they trying to enter into the canon, right? Were they trying to write these texts that would be regarded as scriptural? I think no. I think that they weren't. But as scrolls, I think they ultimately did enter into the authoritative libraries of Jesus followers because, I think especially for two Maccabees, the martyrs on issue. Okay, yeah. No, I, just a side thought. Maybe, maybe they only had one Esther because they were so fundamentally sold out and the other ones were just like uh, oversupply of infants for you. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody wants Esther. Everybody wants Esther. So, so where so are they? Where are they? <laughs> I'm not okay. picking that up. Like, yeah. Really? No, well, we have to find the next Qumran, and then there'll be like an overabundance of yeah. Esther, and then we'll, well know. No, they wouldn't have been dispersed to individuals. It, it's very possible. Oh, it's very possible. I'm just saying, well, we have to keep in mind these are written on scrolls, right. and there is a degree of fluidity. Um, okay, so let's talk about the sources here. Um, just to sum up with the Christians, yes, they're looking at 2nd century BCE Jewish figures as proto-Christians. That's called looking at something Christologically. Right, and Christians do this a lot with the Hebrew Bible, starting with the second century church fathers, figures such as Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and others, look at the Hebrew Bible and say, Tertullian, and say, oh, well, this story is foretelling the coming of Christ. That story, I was mentioning to some people over here, that Justin Martyr interprets the Abraham's visitors in Bereshi Yochad, Genesis 18, as being the father, son, and husband. Oh, of course. Of course, right? Yeah. Okay, so, okay, right. So, so this idea, but when I teach my Catholic students the book of Psalms, which is a course I taught last year, and I'm teaching it again this spring, mm. they, um, it's, it's counterintuitive to not look at the Psalms Christologically for them. It's very, very oh. ingrained in their liturgy. Yeah. It's very much a part of them. They're very spiritually connected to the Psalms because it's in the liturgy, very dominant. And so that's where their mind goes to it. And, and uh, to undermine that is, is uncomfortable for them. To say, let's put this in a historical context, it's uncomfortable. Keep so, you know. mind, we took pagan stories exactly. and then we interpreted them right. Jewishly. Right. That's what people do. It's true. And when they say, when they say you know, Malka, we're so, we're so embarrassed by our supersessionism, sometimes they say, you know, Right, like you just said, every religion is supersessionist, and so we there were there's a set of ancient Near Eastern flood stories, and then there's the a polemical story that argues against the polytheistic right. uh, flood story. So yes, yeah, I mean I think that that's true. Okay, so although they shouldn't be so supersessionist. No. Okay. Um, all right, so let's let's um, I guess I want to spend less time on one and two Maccabees because we spoke about that more, and I want to do 
uh, a real line-by-line line reading of Josephus and Antiquities. Okay, but let's start with um, the bottom of page one, because I want to show how in one Maccabees, Mattathias is portrayed, Matthew is portrayed as a biblical hero. And what are the polemical, what are the rhetorical tools and techniques that the writer uses to portray Matthew as a biblical figure? And he does this in a very, very intentional and a clever and very effective, I think, way. So uh, does somebody want to read, someone who could read um, loudly to reach the recorder over here? And I don't want to start from the beginning. I want to start from chapter 2, verses 27 to 48, at the bottom of page 1. Okay, great. Then Matthias cried out in the town with a loud voice, saying, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. Okay, so what is he paraphrasing here? Moshe. And when did Moshe say, Everyone who is for God, come with me? Right. Okay, yeah. so Mattathias, Matthew is being compared to Moshe. Moshe, and his followers are being compared to Levian. Right, right. Now, this actually makes very good sense because the Hasmoneans are priestly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But also, how does this portray those who are not following the Hasmoneans? What are those Jews who are not <coughs> interested in rebelling against Greek? They're, they're compared to the one who did the sin of the golden calf. They're idolaters. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. This is a really strong claim. And I don't think it's that subtle, right? Okay, so we have... We have Mattathias, it's Moses, the Hasmoneans are the Levites, and all Jews who do not take up arms against the Greeks. Everyone else. They're idolaters, right? They're worshiping a golden cat. Mm-hmm. This is really, really strong, right? And so then, then when we get to the detail of forcible circumcision, which probably mm-hmm. makes some of us very uncomfortable, you could kind of see the logic here that these people are Jews but heathens, right? I mean, really deserving of condemnation. And yes, this is the objective version of the story. Okay, keep going. Um, but also, anybody who lived in the area, whoever had ancestry, not ancestry, had to circumcise or leave town. You're saying for the Hasmoneans? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's very, very strong, right? Basically, if you're not, if you're a, a Jewish man who's not circumcised, then you might as well just get yourself to Greece, because we don't feel like it. I overheard someone using the word uh, ISIS here. Oh, me? No, I mean, in, in the Hebrewism time, okay. about this very thing. About this four circumstances. Oh, because we're talking about the syncretism of Egypt. Yeah, there's yeah. a question. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, 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 I see. Not ISIS, oh, like the Egyptian god. I was talking about like, like, Oh, no. Oh, no. Like, the Taliban. Being this irritation. I thought of the goddess ISIS. Uh, of course you did. Okay. <laughs> I, no, we are very naive of me. No, no, no. This, this uh, you know, Sharia law stuff. Right, you're a heathen. You have to be exactly like us, or yeah. you're just a rape death. Right, it doesn't have much to do with our conversation of the Egyptian death. I was really confused. I was like, oh, yeah, ISIS, of course. Alright, um, I didn't quite understand what you were saying, but no. you said I didn't. No, okay. but, this, but this, this religious bullying, 
Um, there's this, to this lack of tolerance, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, people think, oh, Hanukkah, it's about religious right. freedom. Blah, 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 it's not about religious freedom. Right, I mean, that's, that's yeah. kind of what I'm trying to show here, is that I think that yeah. the rabbis do a very intriguing job of refashioning the story. Yeah. Um, and I hope I have time to talk about the historical context of what pushed them to do that. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's, you know, let's skip ahead, because um, I'm inspired to get to the rabbinic period. Um... Okay, let's um, go to the bottom of page two. Then Judas and his brothers said, <coughs> they defeated the enemy. Then Judas and his brothers said, See, our en enemies are crushed. Let us go up to cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. Mm -hmm. So all the army assembled and went up to Mount Zion. There they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, and the gates burned. In the courts they saw bushes spring up as in a thicket or as on one of the mountains. So abandoned. It was abandoned. It care of, right. They saw also the chapters, the chambers mm -hmm. of the priests in ruins. Then they tore their clothes and mourned with great lamentation. Mm -hmm. They sprinkled themselves with ashes and fell face down on the ground. Mm -hmm. And when the signal was given with the trumpets, they cried out to heaven. So this might seem Hellenized to you, but then we get to two Maccabees, and you really see pathos. You really see drama. This is like tempered compared to two Maccabees. But we do have dramatic elements here, right? They tear their clothes. Of course, this also could be in the biblical tradition. They tear their clothes. They mourn with great lamentation. They sprinkle themselves with ashes. <coughs> okay, now let's turn to two Maccabees, and we get a totally different account. It's not um, cut and dry. We have insertions of miracles. We have lots and lots of prayer, and we have... Um, over and over allusions to the temple. In fact, the opening verses of the Tumacity say, this is the story of how the temple was desecrated and reinstated. So for the writer of Tumacity, the focus is on the temple and the fate of Jerusalem. For the writer of 1 Maccabees, the focus is on the greatness of the Hasmonean family. That's, yeah, yeah, actually I will. Because that's an important point. I should have said that at the beginning of class. So for Tumacity's, the focus over and over is on the fate of the temple. And if you count, which I have done, if you count how many times the word temple appears in two Maccabees, it's many, 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 many more times than in one Maccabees. And if you count how many times the word Jerusalem is stated, the focus is really on God's sanctuary and restoring the dignity and the integrity to the temple. But one Maccabees, remember, was written by a court insider or someone who was commissioned by the Hasmian family to write a really pro-Hasmian but very clear account of the events leading up to the Hasmian dynasty's autonomy. And so there the focus is really on the biblical-like heroism of the Hasmian figures. Yeah. So you might not see Mattathias or Matitao being explicitly compared to Moshe and to Maccabees, but you will absolutely see a very strong emphasis on restoring the dignity uh, of the temple and therefore of God himself. Because uh, when you destroy a temple in the ancient world, you're defeating the God. Right? And that's why, if, I don't know if anyone has ever seen the Arch of Titus in Rome, but you, yeah. it's not just, you have like a... <clears throat> You have a depiction of the slaves being taken yeah, out yeah. and of the vessels of the temple, and then above that you have Greek gods who are overseeing the yeah. whole situation. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so you really see there the theology of like we've defeated the Judean god. Yeah. I heard a story many years ago, I think I might have even read it in the Jewish Observer, 
blessing or otherwise memory, uh, that somebody had seen a graffito, that singular graffiti, yeah, I love it, yeah. on the Arch of Titus that said, I'm Yisrael Hai. Hmm. Isn't that cool? Okay, wow. And this is like a modern, like you're saying. No, no, this is clearly modern. No, no. But it was a fairly modern. That somebody, you know, some quote wise guy uh-huh, had, uh-huh. had, you know, put oh, everything on it. Okay. I mean, it's real high. Yeah. Okay. This is the last maybe 20, 25 years or so. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Actually, yeah. be fine, Professor Wyatt. Yes, yeah, just get the book and He's fantastic. Okay. All right. So now, how does two Maccabees present the desecration of the temple? To start from, on page four, there was no little distress. There was no little distress throughout the whole city. The priests prostrated themselves before the altar in their priestly vestments and called towards heaven upon him who had given the law about deposits that it should keep them safe for those who had deposited them. We're talking about Heliodorus trying to take all the money from the Jerusalem uh, treasury, the temple treasury. So is the, is the temple yeah. then like a bank of people depositing their savings there? Is that what they're That's doing? why the priests, I mean, this is one of the reasons why the priests were regarded as being very corrupt in the late Second Temple period, wow. and the Sadducees specifically, which is a priestly sect, were very elite and very well off because there was uh, a lot of Jews were very uncomfortable with this idea that... Um, they were paying donations consistently to the temple, one to a treasury, the priests, many of them did very well. One, one, of, the, one, one of the priests, the position was actually paid for? Yeah, so Jason, yeah. it's not in your sources, but Jason wants to be high priest, he, he wants to out <coughs> Ananias, so he promises like however many talents of silver yeah. to the Greek official, yeah. and then, yeah, it's basically it's a bribing, it's a bribing yeah. game. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, continue, thank you. To see the appearance of the high priest was to be wounded at heart, for his face and the change in his color uh, disclosed the anguish of his soul. Okay, so do you see how he presses pause on the action of the narrative? See, he stops. He's not moving on in the action. He wants you to, like, click pause and just, like, gaze upon the distress of the priest to see the appearance so of the So this is a Greek... Uh, very Hellenized, yes, yes. Yeah. And very anti-Hellenist at the same time, which is why this is such a fun text. To see the, hold on, to see the uh, appearance of the high priest is to be wounded at heart. Like, you, reader, you should be super wounded right now. For his face and the change in his color disclosed the anguish of his soul. For terror, very Greek word, and bodily trembling had come over the man, which plainly showed to those who look at him the pain lodged in his heart. I mean, it just goes on and on. So this is like a, a, a drama very play. Drama. Yeah. And you said it's very Greek and all that, but you're right. But my esteemed Hebrewster here yeah. says it's just Dafka, the opposite of Mare Kohen. Oh. Like on Yom Kippur, like, wow, like, mm-hmm. the priestly came out with, like, so beautiful, and, like, this is, like, a rewriting of that kind of thing. Certainly, although wow. I'm going to watch later, wow. right? Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I'm not saying that there's a connection, <laughs> just that uh, it was interesting. No, that yeah. is absolutely interesting. Okay, so thank you. So let's skip to, so he these verses about to invade the, ta- the temple. So go to, but when he arrived at the treasury, third line from the second paragraph. <coughs> But when he arrived at the treasury with his bodyguard, then and there the sovereign of spirits and of all authority caused so great a manifestation that all who had been so bold as to accompany him were astounded by the power of God and became faint with terror. Okay, lots of terror in Greek texts. Okay, keep going. I guess it's a Greek word. It is very much a Greek word. (laughs) For there appeared to them a magnificently caparisoned horse with a rider of frightening mane. He, it rushed furiously at Heliodorus and struck at him with his 
with its front hooves. So a magical angel horse comes running up to Heliodorus. Okay, keep going. Its rider was seen to have armor and weapons of gold. Two young men also appeared to him remarkably strong, gloriously beautiful, and splendidly dressed who stood at either side of him and flogged him continuously, inflicting many blows on him. Uh-huh. But this is so supposed to be entertaining. It's supposed to be like, yeah. titillating and exciting. Gloriously, yeah. beautifully, and splendidly dressed. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You don't like it? I, I, th- Too much violence. There is, a, yeah. um, there is a genre of late Second Temple Jewish novels. So, Judith, Tobit, right? I mean, there are a number of them, and some of them, like I mentioned, are collected in the pseudepigrapha, and they're more like novellas. And yeah. they contain a lot of these elements of intrigue and romance and secrecy and murder. <coughs> and it's supposed to be, at, on the one hand, pious, and on the other hand, entertaining. It wasn't meant to be, <coughs> these are books written in Greek, they were not Hellenized books in the sense that they advocated the observance of ancestral law. So the one thing, if you could walk out of here with one idea, it would be that very Hellenized style does not mean a lack of piety. Hmm. And Hmm. piety was not determined by your geography. So you could have, you could be a very assimilated Jew in Jerusalem, but you could be the most pious Jew living in Cyrene in North Africa, or we're going to see tomorrow if you come, in Alexandria. There are many, many very devoted pious Jews in Alexandria who did not know Hebrew. They read their Septuagint, they kept Shabbat, dietary non-circumcision, right, much like today. So all the binaries that we grow up with that are inherent to Hanukkah, I don't want to like destroy your Hanukkah yeah. um, idealism, but, but it, it really historically... And I think Hanukkah, you know, is a, as we have it today, is a very rabbinic holiday, so we have 20 minutes to get to that. Um, But um, we just have to nuance that historical picture a little bit. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so they're just beating him up, and he's like, this is crazy, he runs away, right? Okay, so with our 20 minutes left, um, I want to jump ahead to Josephus. Okay, so Josephus is running (coughs) the end of the first century. This is a fascinating time period because we're on the cusp of a new era, right? We're leaving, we're exiting the Second Temple period, we're entering into the Rabbinic period. There's a lot of scholarship today uh, that argues that 70 CE, the year that the Second Temple was destroyed, wasn't like the big watershed that we think of it. That change happened slowly. So it wasn't like, okay, the day after the Second Temple was destroyed, all right, well, we're in the Rabbinic period now, so like, let's write a Mishnah. It was very... Slow and um, the Pharisees already for you know the Pharisees are like the proto rabbis right the teachers the bearers of the oral law the oral tradition they had been around for centuries since the second century BCE so there's already from the middle of the second time period the concept of a dominant oral law and there's fascinating evidence that there was a dominant oral law that wasn't written down for centuries and centuries. Um, so there is, it's not like everything changes overnight. Right? <coughs> uh, there are Jews living all over the world by the first century. There are synagogues all over the world. Philo of Alexandria, a very important philosopher in the early first century, <coughs> talks about the great synagogue of Alexandria. And so we already have the most fundamental aspect of what we call rabbinic Judaism in place, right? We have Shabbat, dietary law, circumcision, we have purity law, we have synagogues, right? The Jews are reading Torah in the synagogues once a week. I mean, we already have all those pieces of the puzzle. Um, but because things are still oral, we don't get a lot of, we, we don't get every piece of the puzzle. And I think Josephus is a great example of that, where there's evidence <coughs> clearly 
that there's oral tradition circulating about Hanukkah that has to do with light, but he's not totally sure what it is. Okay, so uh, do you want a new reader for page 7, Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews? Can you say one thing? Please. At the time, I have to some books I read way back. Drew Poppers, outside Trudeau, which was 75% of the Drew Poppers lived outside Trudeau. Yeah, I would believe that. I mean, scholars... I thought that was a very Scholars... Scholars estimate anywhere between 200,000 and a million Jews in Alexandria. And that's not random. That's because uh, they know how big Alexandria was. They know that it was divided into five main sections, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon. And they know that from Philo and other sources, that Delta was like the Lower East Side. Like Delta was basically Jewish. <laughs> and, um, and so then if you calculate, okay, how many millions of Jews were in Alexandria, and then you take one fifth of that, it could be as low as 180,000, or it could be much, much more. Um, so anyway, so yes, there are lots and lots of pieces of evidence. Um, there were Jews in Rome, and Antioch, and every major city of the Roman Empire at this time. Okay, reader. Now Judas. No. Oh, oh, please. Oh, okay, yeah. Now Judas celebrated the festival of the restoration of the sacrifices of the temple for eight days and omitted no sort of pleasures thereon, but the feasted them upon very rich and splendid sacrifices. And he honored God and delighted them by hums and psalms. Uh -huh, sure. Sorry. No, you're good. Yep. Nay, they, they were so very glad at the revival of their customs when after a long time of intermission they unexpectedly had regained the freedom of their worship that they made it a law for their prosperity that they should keep a festival on account of the restoration of their temple worship for eight days. Okay, so he knows it's eight days long. It could be that this is because the year that the temple was dedicated, they could not celebrate Sukkot because at that point in time, the Greeks had occupied the temple. So this is like a re, we're going to rededicate the temple. We're going to celebrate this fall holiday in December. Uh, Josephus doesn't say that, but that's uh, implied in 1 Maccabees. Okay, keep going. And from that time to this, we celebrate the fest this festival and call it lights. Right, so even today we call it lights, right? right? I mean, this is like 2,000 years old, we've been calling it lights, or maybe even longer, depending on when this started. So there's oral, we do not know, we do not have the textual evidence before Josephus. It's the earliest reference to a name for the holiday? Yes. But no, it's well, it's, it's called the dedication. Uh, this is the earliest reference for it being light, or being associated with anything having to do with light. Okay, yes. But Nowhere does it, like, there's no indication of why it is called exactly. light. Exactly, super confused, so keep going. I suppose the reason was because the liberty beyond our hopes appeared to us, <laughs> and that sense was the name given to the festival. Okay, so uh, it's figurative. He cannot, he cannot understand why we call it light, so he says, well, I guess because we're in a situation of darkness and then things got very good for us and he's trying to be allegorical. And this allegorical method, by the way, rises in the late Second Temple period. The Stoics use it and the Philo uses it and the Christians use it to read the Bible. This idea that you can read a text allegorically is coming uh, to the foreground in the first century. So he says, all right, well, maybe it's just because you know things got went from bad to worse, but does it seem like he's very confident about that? I suppose the reason was 
because it's Liberty Banner, but here it doesn't. He doesn't really teach it out, and then he totally uh, changes track over here, right? And Junior is, by the way, also rebuilt the walls of the city. Like, it's like Josephus really does not want to dwell on this question. <laughs> oh, let me tell you some more things about Judas. Uh, forget about the question of why it's called light, because I can tell you that he rebuilt the walls. So I really get the sense from Josephus that he is not confident of his theory. Um, okay. So I want to. Um, Where does the name Hanukkah first appear? Dedication. That's like the Hebrew of it. Is used as a name? Yeah, in the Talmud. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what I want to do is just very briefly. I'm not. I right now I'm not going to do the Christian sources inside because I want to get to the rabbinic period. But I want you to to just understand. Thank you. That when it comes to the church fathers of the second, third, and fourth centuries, they read these Jewish figures as important to their own traditions. Right. What were the scriptures for these church fathers? Well, the, the Hebrew Bible was a dominant part of their scriptures. They didn't reject the Hebrew Bible and then come up with the New Testament. They, upend, they appended, right? They supplemented the, the New Testament to the, well, they didn't say the Hebrew Bible, but to the Greek text that they were reading, whether it was a Septuagint or a different Greek text, right? So they're looking at these martyrs as people who, ha- who are proto-Christians. It's very hard to understand, but um, good to have these sources. Okay, especially because... Some people who called Abraham, Abraham, a proto-Jew. I mean... I've heard that... That's a little bit more logical, no? Yes, right. Because it wasn't there yet. Again, it's not accurate, right? We, we have a very dominant Midrashic tradition that Abraham keeps halakha. Right? It's, it's a Midrashic tradition that many, many Jews are very comfortable with. I get that logic more. Maybe it's because I'm subjective. Maybe because I'm a Jew. But we could talk about that for another another time. Let's get to the rabbinic sources uh, because I really, if we don't do particular rabbi, then the mystery will not be solved. Okay. Um, so the first thing I just want to say about um, the Babylonian Talmud is that in general, the rabbis are very uncomfortable with messianism, and they're very uncomfortable with any idea of rebellion. And the reason is probably because there was major psychological and physical trauma in the wake of not just the destruction of the temple in 70, but in the wake of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. And this is really the case. The Bar Kokhba rebellion occurred between the years 132 and 135. And in terms of numbers of Jews being killed, it was more catastrophic than the rebellion uh, in 70 C. So we have these two big catastrophes in Judea, and they're both started by Jews who say, all right, we're going to rebel against Rome. So we have this one in, by the way, there are actually three. They're 66 to 70 is known as the first great revolt, right? Obviously it ends in catastrophe with the destruction of the second, of the second temple, and many of the Jews are sort of forcibly pushed up north to the Galilee. That's where the rabbis flourish. And then we have what's called the War of Quietus in 115 to 117, where Jews um, are rebelling throughout the Roman Empire. This is not a well-known, this is not a well, it's in Hebrew it's called the, the War of Ketos. So if you look in rabbinic sources, we'll call it Ketos. Uh, but uh, in Latin sources, we'll call it Quietus, because the Roman general who quells the rebellion. This is called the Second Revolt. And Jews throughout the Roman Empire revolted. Uh, they refused to pay taxes. They refused to pay public homage to the emperor. Um, the emperor here is Trajan. Here it's uh, Domitian. Well, first it's you know the whole Flavian family. So first it's Titus, 
And then it's a uh, what's his brother's name? Vespasian. Uh, Vespasian. Nero comes before Nero is in the fifties, but uh, very bad to the earliest followers of Jesus. Okay. Um, and then we have the Barco for revolt. So this is um, during the time of Hadrian. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because it's very, very possible that these Jews, in fact, I would say it's <coughs> more than possible, it's probable, these Jews believed that they were living in the end time. The end time. We know this from New Testament evidence as yeah. well. Paul thinks he's living in the end time. Early Christians and Jews believe that they're on the cusp of the Messianic era. Now, what's the best way to herald in the Messianic period? To get a repeat of the Hasmonean story. Right? Um. Just as, and this is the key, just as the Jews in 175 were a tiny, scrappy group that were nothing compared to the power of the Syrian Greek army, and they won, well then why wouldn't God do that for us again? And we know absolutely with Bar Kokhba, who mints his own coins, which is like a total act of rebellion, right? You mint your own coins in the Roman Empire, you are rebelling against the emperor, right? And very, very messianic, we know from his letters that have been found in the Judean desert, he believes that he's a messianic figure, Hundreds of thousands of Jews are killed. I mean, you could read Talmudic passages in Gittin where they say, in the tractate called Gittin, where they talk about rivers turning to blood and the fields of the Gentiles being uh, fertilized with the blood of the Jews. I mean, really heart-wrenching images. And they're not talking about the destruction of 70 feet. They're talking about Bar Kokhba. So we had a series of very catastrophic events in Judea and post-Bar Kokhba, the rabbis become silent when it comes to messianism. They're very, very wary of it. And we have one passage in which uh, the great uh, early 2nd century rabbi uh, Akiba makes a positive statement about um, Bar Kokhba. Akiba says, well, maybe he is, you know, maybe the Messiah has come, maybe he is Messiah. And a rabbi says, Akiba, weeds will grow out of your cheeks before the Messiah comes. And that's the end of the discussion. So there is this weariness when it comes to messianism. And I think that this is the motivator for turning Hanukkah into a holiday. Instead of promoting militarism, promotes our covenantal relationship with God. Right? When we talk about the miracle of the oil, we're talking about God's commitment to always keeping that light, always having this continuous relationship enabling us to continually serve God. Um, and that's not to say it didn't happen, right? Because we do have this Josephus source. And he's like, well, look, I mean, we've been calling it light. I don't know why. Not much after the Hasmonean period. The Hasmonean period ends in 63 BCE, right? So I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying it doesn't come to the foreground of the Hanukkah story until the rabbis feel the need to refashion the holiday. Okay, so... I want to turn your attention to two fascinating um, rabbinic sources at the very, very end of the source sheet. Well, I guess you have to do the Gemara, even though you find it. Forget it. Okay. Turn to, turn to page nine. We have to do the Gemara. We have to do the Gemara. Okay. So what is the reason for Hanukkah? And then we have this miracle story, right? Did you read it? Okay, so I'll just say quickly. A rabbi's taught on the 25th of Kislev, right, commenced the days of Hanukkah, which are eight on which a lamentation for the dead and fasting are forbidden, oh. right? You have to celebrate in Hanukkah. I'm sorry, I'm doing top of page 9. Mm-hmm. We're doing the Gemara. For when the Greeks entered the temple, they defiled all the oils. Top of page 9, Babylonian Talmud. 
right? And when the Hasmonean dynasty prevailed against and defeated them, they found only one cruise of oil, which lay with the seal of the high priest, right? It's pure, it's not defiled, but it contained sufficient for one day's lighting only, yet a miracle was wrought wherein, and they lit for eight days. And that's the miracle that is the catalyst mm-hmm. for the celebration of Hanukkah. Now we have these two little tidbits that are very, very, very fascinating. They're basically parallel sources. So one is in Pesikta Rabati, early medieval midrash, Nigilat Tani, this is a Tanaitic source, a very, very early rabbinic source. <coughs> and um, let's just look at the English here, and that way we can leave two or three minutes for questions. But follow along the Hebrew if you can. We celebrate Hanukkah because the Greeks, and these are the same tradition, right? These are records of the same tradition. The Greeks entered the temple and contaminated the vessels, and there was nothing with which to light the menorah. When the hand of the Hasmonean dynasty was victorious, this is interesting, they brought seven iron spears, covered them in tin, and began to light. What what I find fascinating about this, first of all, this is just not a well-known text, right? Our first graders in yeshivas learning this text from Basic Therapy, but it seems to be the connector between the older tradition of the military victory and the newer tradition of the miracle of the oil. Because we do have the military defeat in this source, right? So this little, little sentence. We have this military defeat, right? The Hasmonean dynasty is victorious, but then we have this allusion to the letting of the menorah. And I think this might help us understand how the transition occurred. This is pre-Talmudic, Mikhail Tani. Okay, so um, any thoughts, any questions? Are, are you surprised by this source? Is there something, something on your mind? Mm-hmm. There were first in Iowa, and uh, this is not the rabbi told me this, but he said, what's the miracle actually? How long did the miracle last? for the accounting department. And they said eight, because the first one they knew, and I I find it so interesting that here it says that they had seven iron spears. So Uh um, they, you know. Yeah, in Pesika Rabati it's eight, and in Megillah Tani it's seven. So I think that is really interesting because the older source, the Megillah Tani, would, is probably imagining the menorah, right? So there's seven, but maybe the later one is trying to correlate with the eight days of Hanukkah. Super interesting. Eight days, which, yeah. which seven of those were the actual miracle yeah, because we, they only First knew that it'll be one. Right. The only, yeah. So, so I, seven days would be I right. thought it was very cool. Yeah, no, that is interesting, mm-hmm. right? The first day is not, not as interesting as the mm-hmm. other seven. Any other thoughts as we wrap up? Yeah, please. The Chabad make a big point that the menorah has to be straight. Right. The arms of it can't be curved as we classically see it. So it's interesting because if you're making it out of iron spears, spears are straight. I, I wonder if there's a relationship there. I don't know. Does anyone have a connection with Chabad that would know? That's fascinating. No, I don't know. They get it from Maimonides. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very interesting. Other well, thoughts? Yeah. Well, Grand Central, you know, the Menorah, that's straight. Yeah, I think they said you look it up, there's two reasons why they made it straight. Yeah, I will, I will look it up. Yeah, but these are spears, so they're kind of separated from each other. It's not like a candelabra, right? But this is like, it's interesting, it's a little known text, it's an early text, and it seems to really fuse both aspects of the tradition. I don't have all the answers, I'm laying the sources out before you, and um, uh, yeah, the main thing is to really show, though, that at its earliest stage, the story was really about the military defeat, and then later takes on the theological aspect. Um, other comments? 
Yeah. That's a very mundane question. Sure. Why would you need seven spheres to light? Why not one sphere? Right, I mean, but that's the question of, like, where is he getting this from? There must have been some sort of oral tradition, right? Because right. it doesn't exactly seem logical. Yeah. But then uh, there is some relationship with rededicating the menorah. I mean, right? There is this menorah that they're trying to reinstate. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious about the 